Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to a very special day here at Mendham Hills Community Church. We are continuing on in our summer series, Outcasts. We've been looking at how Jesus pursued, how he interacted, treated, and loved the outcasts, the, the social or the political or the religious outcasts of his day. And, and we're trying to allow Jesus to inform us on how we should treat, well, the social, political, and religious outcasts of our day. We've also been looking at this desire that lies somewhere deep within us to get to, well, to get to what C.S. Lewis called in his brilliant essay by the same name, The Inner Ring, our pursuit of, our, of an ever-increasing circle of power, of influence or popularity. You see this pursuit in every social setting, in our homes, in our schools, workplaces, and unfortunately, even in our, our church. And it is this pursuit of being part of the in crowd or the dominant group that has as its predictable result outcasts. Those who don't make it in are pushed aside, minimalized, marginalized, or, or even used to propel us on our pursuit of that ever evasive inner ring. Now, if you've been with us, you might remember Lewis has two great quotes from the essay. I, I want to share them with you again to set the stage for our time together. The first was this, he said, I believe that in all men's lives, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. This morning, we're gonna, we're gonna experience the product of that terror. And he went on to say of, of all of the passions, the passion for the inner ring, it's the most skillful in making a man who's not yet very bad do very bad things. And, this morning, we're going to look at just that, a real-life example of some of those very bad things. Now, if you pursue this topic on your own, and I hope you do as your pastor, I would love for you to do that, but here's what you're going to discover, that Jesus' pursuit of inclusion, of even those who would have been considered the most deplorable, the least worthy, and the furthest from God, it is at the heart of who he is and his ministry. It's literally everywhere. I'm going to actually show you that next week. Next week, through actually some in-church social experiments, I'm going to show you that there is actually a psychological force at work within us that we have to battle against, which is trying to get us to isolate and marginalize others. But you need to know it's not just Jesus' earthly ministry where this pursuit of and love for the outcast began. You, you actually see it promised throughout the Old Testament. And God's heart for the outcast shows up very early in the human story. You see, the story of Jesus, it actually begins in the Garden of Eden where God promises the father of lies, lies that Adam and Eve and you and I fall prey to, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But Jesus' clearest prophetic revelation is when God comes to a man of his own calling, a man named Abram, and he makes him a promise. We call it the Abrahamic Covenant. You first see it in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus, the Messiah from the line of Abraham, would be that promise and that prophesied blessing. But if you know the story, the promise gets off to a rather slow start 
Because Abram's wife, Sarah, is old, like really old, and no son is coming. And so after some time, they decided they would take matters into their own hands. And, and Sarah convinced, it, w- it was her idea, remember, Sarah convinced Abram to sleep with her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and in order that he have his heir and God's plan be fulfilled. And well, biology worked. Hagar becomes pregnant with Abram's son. But as you can imagine, it's not just biology at work in this situation. There is another human emotion. There is another human force at work as well. Jealousy and and bitterness and rivalry. They all begin to take root. And so, as Sarah begins to complain to Abram about the situation, he says to her, look, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you think best. The scriptures say that then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. You hear that now, she mistreated her. Why? Well, she's driven by jealousy and rivalry. And of course, Hagar does the only thing that a slave could do. She runs and she flees. She's a young, pregnant slave girl. She's ostracized by the treatment of someone closer to the inner ring. And she's got nowhere to go but away. She is, in a very real sense, cast out. An outcast. Now, some of you might know that an angel of the Lord, the scripture says, came to her and convinced her to return home. But he made her a promise that her son, who she was to name Ishmael, that her son too would become a great nation. My guess is that through her tears, newly acquainted now with the pain and isolation of the outcast, somewhere in the middle of the desert, Hagar responded. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Quote, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This pregnant, outcast slave girl names God. You can't make this stuff up, right? And what does she call him? She calls him in Hebrew, El Roy. The God who sees. Even the outcast. Well, she delivers the child and and does as God instructed. She names him Ishmael and some time goes by and, and miraculously God is faithful to his covenant promise and Sarah too becomes pregnant and delivers a son for the newly renamed Abraham, and she names this child of promise Isaac. But as you know, history is a way of repeating itself, especially when our desire for the inner ring is settled so deeply in our broken souls, and it's not long before a time, it's not a long time before rivalry and, and jealousy, well, they begin to form between the boys. And once again, Sarah goes to Abram, and she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son cast her out. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Jealousy, bitterness, rivalry, and their natural byproduct, outcasting. And so cast out by Abraham, she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Here's what the scriptures say, that when the water in the skin she had took was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes, and she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die, my boy. And as she sat there, she began to sob. She again cried the cry of the outcast. And now so too her son. And yet again, God heard the boy crying. And an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. 
lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And my guess is, right there, it hit her. Why God, some time ago, had told her to name her son Ishmael. Because in Hebrew, Ishmael means that God hears. You see, friends, from the very origins of our story and our world, a truth rings out that when it comes to the outcast, when it comes to the one set aside, the other, the marginalized, the maligned, the bullied, the picked on, the disenfranchised, God sees and God hears. This is the nature of our God. And this should be, this has to be, the nature of his people. That's why I've, I've invited Diane Grossman to be with us today. Diane leads Mallory's army with that same clarion call that kids and adults, schools and communities, that we would see and hear. We would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the cry of just one of the modern-day outcasts amongst us, the bullied. Many of you know Diane lost her precious little girl, Mallory, to suicide at only the age of 12, a casualty in this war. Despite being beautiful and athletic, a cheerleader, an accomplished gymnast, Mallory still felt the pain and the shame and the torment of being outcast. Friends, these things are not ancient Bible stories. These truths that we've been discussing, they have modern-day casualties in a war that is still raging hotter than ever. And so, t so today, my prayer is that the people of God would attempt to be just a little bit more like God. And so I'm going to ask Diane if she would come up because you and I, we need to see and we need to hear. Come and join me. Before we get started, it's important to me. I know, I know in watching some of your interviews, you've said, I don't, when this happened, I didn't want Mal to be the poster child for this. No. And I get that because I want Mallory to be seen and heard too. So. I just, I pulled some pictures um, from some different places. This is the picture so many of us are familiar with, right? Yeah. This perfect little girl. Um, mm. It couldn't be more, more all-American looking in her, her cheerleading outfit. And this is just such a wonderful picture of you and her. And, and when you walked in today, I said to you, I couldn't believe how much you looked, you know, your daughter looked like you until yeah. I, I saw you in person. It's amazing. She was an amazing athlete. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't believe there's footage in the movie that you guys did of her doing this same move, but doing it on the couch at home. Yeah, that was not always the best day when she <laughs> would do gymnastics on my furniture, but yes. It was amazing. As a father who's raised a, a few kids that have been in, in sports, that was amazing. Right. And I just love this one because it's just a kid. It is. And it's cute because that's a water bottle inside her hair. <laughs> Yeah, so she stuck a water bottle in and made it stand up and, you know, said it was, she was just being mal, she was just being funny. And that's the thing, right? Like, she's just a normal kid. Yeah, she's just an all-American little girl. Like, everything that you would hope that your child would be. She was a good student. She was kind. She was loving. She had a soft heart. Um, she was very sensitive, and I bring that up because sensitivity is the number one characteristic for children who self-harm. Hmm. And so she was very sensitive to the world. She was very mindful of people who went without. I always said that she was an old soul. She hmm. had a, a really big heart, 
And um, but she was. She was just this all-American little girl. And what she, she love? Like, if you were going to tell me, like, oh, Mallory, she loved. She loved camping. She loved being outside. She loved climbing trees. She loved nature. Um, she loved flowers and rocks and stones. I mean, she was really, I think, um, Mallory was born on Earth Day, which we never really paid much attention to it. But she had this characteristic of just loving. I always said that she loved life, which mm. is why it was so hard to learn that she hurt mm. herself. So, but she did, she loved outside and she loved making crafts. So she would make these little bracelets um, and she would sell them for Camp Good Days and Camp Good Days is a camp for um, kids with cancer. So, and she would cut her jeans and she would open up the bottom of the jeans and sew them together and she'd make a pocketbook or she would make a, take a long sleeve shirt and she would turn it into a dog bed. So she was very crafty and she loved creating things out of old things that we give away, mm. things that we toss out. Right. She would find a way to repurpose, reuse. Um, she loved you know, recycling. She used to always say that if she came back as something, she didn't want to come back as plastic because it ends up in the landfill and it's not recyclable. <laughs> so things like that, that's, that's, that was Mal's heart. So um, if, if, if Mal was with us, like, she, she be four years older. What were her dreams? Like, what, what, where was she going? Where was she heading? We always used to talk. I used to say, I have one that's going to go to college and one that's going to own a business. Mallory loved the idea of making things. And, we, and she also loved showcasing people with disabilities who made things. And so she would be the type of business owner that would sell candles made by families that have autistic children. Or she would be the one that would sell purses that were made from you know, women in Africa. So it was, we always talked about Mallory owning a business. And as a business owner, Myself, I always kind of knew that she would follow in my footsteps. Mm. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't uncommon for Mallory to be at my business working with me and mimicking some of the things that I do. So I, I think she would have been a great small business owner. Yeah. So you've got this seemingly perfect family, right? Yeah. And uh, everything seems to be going kind of the all-American way. And this this bullying concept or reality comes in how did it start like did you and when did you find out it's so slow and that's again why we decided to speak out because i think we think bullying is this big kid takes after the little kid and takes their lunch money and we think it's very visual like we'll see it and we'll be able to stop it Mallory's bullying is started out as relational bullying. There was a group of girls that I think Mallory wanted to be in the in crowd, like sure. what you talked about, and Mallory wanted to fit in. And so she would oftentimes, I would say, jump through hoops to try to fit in. I mean, we and all do that, right? We're still course. doing it. Listen, we talk about you know the popular, I, I find that even in my own circle now, I see my friend, mom, friends, who will do things or buy things that they can't afford so that their kid can fit yep. in. You know, I remember when Mallory was, Mallory, my other daughter Carly, were little kids, there was this sweatshirt, it was called the Butter Sweatshirt, and it literally was soft like butter. It was $115 for a sweatshirt, and we didn't have the money. And I remember charging and buying two sweatshirts because I wanted my kids to fit yep. in. And I remember my husband and I having this big argument, and I was like, you don't understand, they have to have this sweatshirt. <laughs> and he was like, well, we can't afford it. And I was like, well, 
too late, you know, we'll just have to pay it off. But I remember <laughs> being in that mindset that you have to fit in. Yeah. And so that's kind of when it started is it was, you know, I'm friends with you on Tuesday. I'm not going to talk to you on Wednesday. Nobody's available to sleep over on Friday. Are you around? And so it became this um, tug of war of friendship. The summer settled at the end of fifth grade, and I kind of saw what was going on. I went on the fifth grade trip, and I, I visually saw the girls, and I, I had warned Mallory to kind of back off and find other friends and to do other things. I, I encouraged her to focus on cheerleading and focus on competitive cheer and things like that. And um, sixth grade rolled around, and I truly believe that the girls just, they put a target on Mallory's back and, and just went after her. And I think that it really was to climb the social ladder in middle school. Mm -hmm. I don't think yeah. anybody ever said, oh, I had a great time in middle school. We all struggled because <laughs> yeah. we're going through transition, right? Our lives are changing. And so I think for Mallory, she wanted to fit in. And I think that the girls saw her wanting to fit in. They were opportunist and they used her need to want to fit in and their ability to climb the social ladder. We've talked about that in church. We have this thing, we get into a new ring and we love to build a wall behind us so nobody mm -hmm. else can come in. Yep, and that's really kind of what happened with Mallory, but it's, I talk about it because it's so slow and it's important for parents to really be mindful. You know, you want your children to be able to expand their friend groups or change their friend groups, but you want to make sure that they're not the ones that are excluding the weakest link. And that's really what kind of happens generally between third and sixth grade. And this, you know, towards the end, this got significant. This, this was not, you know, we're not, listen, I have four kids and the stories you just told me, I, I felt them in my own home. Yes. I, we've been through in those same places. This got taken to to deeper and darker levels. It did. I, th I think it was in, you know, they would be in school and they would pull her hair when the teachers weren't looking. They would call her bad names and, you know, make up stories and spread rumors and say that she liked this boy. And But I think what we need to understand is if you isolate it and say that they called her this name, then okay, that's one thing. But imagine this repetitive behavior day in and day out where someone's constantly pulling your hair. It's almost like domestic violence. It's abuse. Yeah. And when you're telling people, the adults in your life, that this is happening and they're dismissing it and saying, oh my God, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Ignore it, right? We all say that to our yeah. kids. Well, don't worry about it. Just ignore it. I think that repetitive, constant behavior, you know, Mallory used to ask to leave the classroom so that she could um, go to her other class early. She would hide in the bathroom and they would say, if you tattle on us, we're gonna kick your butt. Um, they wouldn't let her sit at lunch. It was just an everyday abusive behavior. You shared the story of the, the dressing up together. Can you just share that? I mean, that just, yeah. as a dad of two little girls, that just breaks my heart. It was a tough one. I, um, Mallory, she, you know, she struggled to want to fit in. And I remember she was so excited. She called me and she was like, hey, what time are you coming home from work? And I was like, regular time, Mal, why? What's up? And she's like, oh my God, you won't believe it. The, the squad is going to let me be in the squad. And I was like, oh, what's this about? And she goes, oh, tomorrow we're all going to wear the jean overall shorts, a pink t-shirt, my white converse. Like she had it all planned out and they had group texted her to be in this squad. So we had the jean overall shorts, thank goodness, and <laughs> the Converse, so I didn't have to go on a quest for that, but we did need the pink t-shirt. And I remember taking her to the mall and walking through and she was just so excited. She had her little shopping bag in her hand and she went down to Starbucks and she got a little strawberry frappuccino and she was really feeling good. And I thought, 
as a mom, I was like, okay, it's over, right? Like mm -hmm. she's going to finally fit in. So the next day she got up and she was dressed and she was early and ate her little breakfast. And I remember watching her. I remember watching her go out the door and I was just relieved as a mom. I just remember thinking, okay, it's over, right? And um, the girls had no intentions of letting her be in the squad. Um, she wore that outfit of shame all day. And I remember when she came home. Because none of them showed up in it. No, of course not. They did it just to see if she would do it, if she was foolish enough to be a part of and do what they asked her to do. So um, I remember I was so excited when she got home from school. And um, I was like, Mal, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't want to talk about it. And she ran upstairs and she ripped the clothes off and threw them in the corner. And what's um, really heartbreaking is the, the outfit sits in the floor in her room. What do I do with it? It represents so much yeah. of the exclusion and the pain that she went through. And for, as a child, you might think, oh, it's just an outfit. But to her, it represented so, so much. much. Yeah. And as a dad, I mean, I, I just resonate with every one of those feelings. And, and, and that's the key to this is, this is Mallory's story, but it's also a shared story. You shared with me when, when we, we first met the statistics yeah. on this. Could you, could you bring us up to speed on, on how yeah. big this problem is? One in four children, one in four children in just the state of New Jersey um, report that one in four children are bullied at school. And by the word bullied, we're not talking about just everyday teasing. We're talking about actual physical abuse where the children create anxiety, depression, um, appetite loss, school refusal, learning disabilities. Like this is a huge problem and it continues to grow. As the bullying grows, so does the suicide rate. Um, several states since COVID has reported now suicide is the leading cause of death for our children ages 10 to 18. Leading cause of death. Your children are more likely to die by suicide than they are to die by cancer or a car accident. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the truth is that as we sit in a church that has several hundred people on a Sunday morning, that means there are... Oh, I, I, your lot. congregation has a lot of, a lot of children. I would, I would say that if you have four children, one of them is being tortured. So when we talked, you brought something um, to, to mind for me. And, and she's the poster child for it because just like you said, we tend to think what a marginal, we tend to think we know what an outcast looks like. We right? do, yeah. Right? It's whatever. I, you know, I don't want to put names on it. There, there was a story I read to my congregation about Emily Marillo. Her mom wrote that letter when yes, she graduated. Yes, I spoke to her, yeah. And Emily's mom so poignantly in the letter um, talked about how her daughter was different. Yeah. Um, she was a special ed student. She did her hair in, in, in different ways. And, and, but she felt as if nobody cared. And, and the story that she told is, it turns out that nobody did. Right. She was right. Right. Well, I think as a society, we often think that the weird kid at school, the kid with learning disabilities, the kid with autism, the kid that has whatever, we almost accept it, right? Mm. They don't fit in. They are the outcast. So as a society, as a cultural society, we accept that those children are weird. We even define them. I, I always share that um, Mallory died on Wednesday and um, there was a girl in Pennsylvania who um, died on Sunday. And 24 hours after Mallory passed away, 
you know, the social media was flooded, the newscast was flooded, the pretty cheerleader, oh my gosh, you couldn't believe this tragic story. Whereas this young girl in Pennsylvania who had similar circumstances, but she came from a drug addicted family, she had black fingernails, she, you know, was living with her aunt and uncle, no one was talking mm. about her. Her life didn't matter. Mallory's life mattered because she was attractive and came from this nice family. And I realized in that moment, in my own grief, that that little girl's story needed to be told along with all of the others, that the mother of the child with autism or on the spectrum, they know that their child is different. They don't need you to remind them that it is. Yeah. And they're not asking you to be best friends with them but they're asking you to leave them alone. Or maybe you just say hi to them. I'm always so proud that on the day that we left the school, as Mallory's leaving, there's a little girl named Michelle um, and she's learning disabled. Um, I believe Michelle has Down syndrome and she was sitting on the grass with her aide as we were leaving the school on the day that Mallory died. And Michelle said to, to Mal, um, bye Mal. And Mallory was so mad at the situation, she stormed off and I looked at her and I said, Mallory, what do we say? And she goes, bye Michelle. Michelle was the last student that Mal said goodbye to at school. And I'm so proud. Mm. And I had heard stories from other parents after Mallory died and they would say that Mallory was very kind to my son who was special needs at school. Or Mallory was the one kid that would acknowledge my child down the hallway. And as a mom, that makes me very proud. No doubt. Now, now, but, but where this gets difficult for, for us, Jesus commands us to, to not just be nice, but he actually commands us to search for people like this, that yeah. we should look for them, value them, that they matter tremendously to God, that we should find them. And, and he says that when they're found, we should celebrate. But if I can't, if, I, if they don't look like I think they're going to look like, like, how do, how do we search for them? How do, we, how do we find these kids? I think, first of all, we stop labeling our children. I think the most important thing is, is stop identifying and stop labeling our children. I, I think all of our children are special, and I, I think that we raise our children to be upstanders. We hear that word all the time, that, you know, be an upstander. But I think we start with our kids. We teach them how to be upstanders. I think we assume that our children, because they're good or because they're nice, I think that we teach our children to be the kind of person, and I use the word kind, be the kind of person that you want to meet. Don't be the kind of person that you want to be. You hear that from celebrities all the time. Be you. Be the mm, kind of person so that you want to meet, not the kind of person you want to be. You know, in order to have friends, we have to be a friend. And that takes a lot of courage and responsibility. So it's, it's not, I think we have to assume that every child can fall victim, regardless of their financial circumstances or their good home or small business owners. Or I think if we just assume that every child could call, fall victim to being bullied, we agree to that. And then we focus on raising children to be upstanders. So if they see something, they say something. You, you've shared that, you, that Mallory's Army, this incredible organization, this movement really that, that you've right. created, it sits, it's like a stool with, with four legs, that, that you really have four customers, for lack right, of a better word. Right. The community, the schools, the parents, and the kids. Yeah. In a word or two, what is your message to each one of those four audiences? So kids are easy, empower them. 
empower them, you know, give them the tools and the infrastructure that they need. Teach them what it's like to be an upstander. Don't assume that they know how to defend. Understand that they are in a position to, they are the CEOs of their hallways. If you want to know who's the bully and who's being bullied, ask them. Hmm. The parents, stop defending their behavior. We all like think our children are these wonderful, amazing human beings and we never like to believe that our children would be involved in something. Let's assume that they're human. Let's assume that they're going to make mistakes and let's assume that they're going to do things that they shouldn't do. And when you get the phone call, instead of defending little Johnny's behavior, maybe you say, okay, I'm going to have a conversation. Don't be so defensive. It's yeah. okay. I'd rather for them to get in trouble at 12 than to get in trouble at 19. At 12, it's a teachable moment. At 19, it could be a felony, right? Um, schools, there's no such thing as zero tolerance, and we always have to have tolerance, right? Children, again, make mistakes. Have an infrastructure and a system in place so that you can acknowledge that there's a problem and have consequences. When children can predict the consequences of their behavior, then they do better. So have that in place right. for them. And as far as the community, it's things like this. You know, be the voice, be the megaphone saying, yes, we're here, and open your doors to these problems and discuss them. 10 minutes ago, you taught me something so important. I said to you before we started, mm -hmm. it's very hard for me to talk about your daughter's suicide in front of you. It's very awkward. And, yeah. and what did you say to me? It was such a vital lesson. I said, we can't change what we don't acknowledge. If we don't talk about what happened to Mallory, then there will be more Mallory's. And so in order for us to make a difference, we have to talk about the uncomfortable things. Um, the Bible speaks quite a bit about the power of words. Sticks and stones uh, may break my bones, but names will never hurt me yeah. is a flat out lie. Uh, the writer of Proverbs said, the tongue has the power of life and death. Jesus' brother, James, said, among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame on fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting the entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. Tell me about the power of words. We're a blank canvas when we're born into this life, right? And it's the paintbrushes of color that paint us on who we are. Harsh words and pain are just a sh black sharpie on the canvas of who we are. And no matter how many times we say, I'm sorry, the black marks never go away. The scars from our past and pain, they're always present. And so to say that sticks and stones, I understand why they would say that, but the words are the most powerful. If words are not that powerful, then why do we tell the most wonderful people in our lives how much we love them? Hmm. We say, I love you. And so, in turn, when we use our tongue to say, I hate you, it has the same meaning. You've done so much work on this. Um, Jesus said, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Well, what is the heart full of? What, wh where is this coming from? I believe we're frustrated as a society. I, I think that we have decided that we all have to be special, and I think that social media has given us a platform or a podium that we haven't necessarily earned. Mm. And I think oh, that that trans so right, and that transfers down to our children. You know, there's always a cartoon that I often share where it has a, a woman's tongue and it's got a leash and it goes through to the kid, and it's a kid. You know, if we want our children to be great human beings, it starts with us. 
And so I think that social media has elevated us. I think that oftentimes we follow celebrities or people that maybe they don't have the best intentions or maybe they're using their voice to elevate themselves in a negative light. And I, I, I think that we should just be okay with who we are and we don't need all the attaboys. Our kids don't need to be sports fans or don't have to be special in anything. I think that we could just go back to just being amazing human beings. Mm. And, and I, I don't think that we need a voice for all of us. I think Abraham Lincoln once said, God must really love average people because he made an awful lot of them. Right, right. We don't always have to be special. You, um, I, I've been watching, I'm so impressed by what you're doing. Uh, the you. strategies and tactics that you're using. The scriptures say to train up a child in a way it should, it should go. Not teach a child. No. But train them. Right? Live by example. By example. Put them in situations where they're practicing what they're going to do. Jesus um, gives us, you've been giving these strategies to try to help us break this pursuit of what C.S. Lewis said is the inner ring, right? Couple of strategies that I've heard you talk about. The first is the concept of common ground. Yes. How do we teach that? How do we train our children in the concept of common ground? Put your phone down. Our children need to be social, right? In this time that we've spent together, it has been proven that you now will defend me if I'm being attacked because we've spent 20 minutes talking to get to know one another. I like ice cream, you like ice cream. I like soccer, you like soccer. We are more likely to defend one another and that's the first step in building upstanders. Common ground is the first key. It's one of those and the way that common ground is built is through the human exchange. Mm. It's not through social media. You can't build a human relationship through an electronic device put limitations on your children's electronic devices. Monitor it, make sure that you understand that they need to be social. In order to build social skills, they have to be social. There is nothing social about social media. It should be called isolation media. It's amazing, right? Yeah. You, um, you, I watched you do something that we've actually, over the last couple of weeks here, seen Jesus do. He understood what the disciples were thinking about a, a ostracized, outcast woman. And, he put voice to what their hearts were saying in hopes that they would be shaken to it. You've done that same thing. You've made kids put voice to text. Right. Talk about that for a second. So if you text, we have a lot of, we call them electronic warriors, right? They can, we can say some really nasty things when we're using our, our thumbs to type it. So we have a, um, a program where we go and teach the kids and we have these little cards and they look like cell phones. Just having the kids read these hateful words out loud, you can see how the children are uncomfortable. They're like, I don't wanna say it. Like when you put in the words like, oh, you should go kill yourself, but to say it. And that's I want the text you to read your daughter it. got. She, it was actually said to her. The day before she died, one of the girls looked at her and said, when are you gonna kill yourself, Mal? Um, you also have spoken about the concept of self-worth and where we draw it from. Right. Speak on that for a second. You know, for me, I, I feel like I'm a living example. If you want to live in a great community, you've got to be a great community. You know, my self-worth isn't valued in the things that I have or the car that I drive or the business that I own. To me, my self-value is that 
when I look in the eyes of my husband and my children and I don't need them to be proud of me. I need them to call me when they need me. I don't need them to, you know, worship or love the things that we have or to miss the things that we don't have. I think it's really about being humble. And I always say that in whether it's a text or an email, I am always humbled to offer my voice to an epidemic that is literally stealing our children's future. Mm. How do we teach our kids to to get, for, for me as a pastor, I'm always trying to encourage our community, believe what Christ says you are, who he says you are, your value as a son or daughter of God, you're, you're created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. How do we get our kids to draw their value from some other place than their popularity at school? I think we teach them early on that the affirmations of who we are and what we want to be in this world, they don't come from the outside world, they've got to come from within. So I think we teach our children really early on that when you look in the mirror, and that's very even difficult for me, I always say that I don't see what other people see when I look in the mirror. People will say, I see a warrior, or I see a great person, and I just see a woman with a broken heart mm. who never wants another mom to experience what our family experienced. So I think early on, rather than telling our children how wonderful they are, we show them how wonderful they are. I think it's really important that we're very mindful. You know, when we're in the minivan and we're rushing late for soccer practice, I think, and there's a car that's trying to get over, I think it's really important that maybe we take a seat back because you've got four ears in the back that are listening to you. And so maybe you let that car come in. You don't always, mm -hmm. if someone's in front of you, you I think that we have to practice mindfulness and recognize that we don't know, maybe the car that's cutting us off, maybe they're running to the hospital. Maybe they're, I remember sitting in the limousine coming back from New York City when I got the phone call about Mal and um, I had taken Carly to the city for her um, a celebration and the driver was like, just get me to the hospital as soon as, and I remember him, you know, dodging in and out of traffic. And at that time I was like, just get there. I'm sure the cars on the road were probably thinking, who is this car that's trying to, that's yes. weaving in and out. There was a desperate mom in the back seat trying to get to the hospital as fast as she could. I keep that in my mind. And so I think that that's how we teach our children is to be mindful and to recognize that we don't know what someone might be going through. This is our story, this is their story. Forgiveness is a process. Yes. Where are you in process? I think for me personally, I always say that um, God and I disagree right now, right? We're, we're at a very big disagreement because I'm always like, Mallory's first attempt was her only attempt. And so I often think, couldn't you have given us five more minutes? Mm. Um, I get mad at them sometimes too. Yeah. And so I always say that God and I agree to disagree. Um, but I also say that forgiveness for me at this stage is earned. If someone asked me what I would want from the girls and the principal and the administration, first of all, I would like for them to admit wrongdoing. Just, to, just admit that you made a bad call that day, right? Just admit that, okay, we got it wrong. That's number one. And then spend the rest of your life like I've done, educating others. This was my mistake and this is how we could do better. I met a police officer once that came up to me and his son, um, killed someone in a drinking and driving accident. And he said rather than his son defending, his son travels to high schools talking about the mistake that he made drinking and driving and taking someone's life. And he's like, that's to me the pathway to forgiveness, is that he feels that he will never really be fully forgiven 
but if he can use his life to improve others, that is the step forward. And that's what I would like for the girls. Yeah, we all, look, all of our hands are, are dirty in this at one level or another. I've raised four kids and I've spent way too much time trying to make sure that they were part of the cool kids in the in crowd. Mm -hmm. um, that has occupied way too much of my concern. I don't want my kids to raise their kids with that as, as big a priority. I've got a community of people here. How, how do we get involved? How can we partner? You know, I, I, I've said uh, that our church needs to be an outreach army and, and you've got Mallory's army. How, how do we have a summit here and how do, we, how do we become allies in this fight? Well, the summit we can plan, so we'll put something together for your youth, and I'll be happy to speak with your youth pastor about putting something together. We would love that. Um, and so that's step one. Number two, I would always ask that your congregation um, watch the Mallory the movie. It talks a lot about how you can get involved. Um, it talks a lot about our story, and I think that continuing to follow us, I think it's important that we put pressure on legislation. I think if we want change, then we have to we have to not demand it, we have to command it, right? We can't just say that we want it, I think we have to get involved. I think that we need to pay attention, we need to know our Board of Ed members, we need to know where their heart is at, what do they stand for? I think, again, if we wanna live in a great community, we've gotta be a great community, and that takes activism and getting involved and understanding. Be proactive in this fight, don't wait until something bad happens, to email Mallory's Army and say, I need your help. Do it ahead of time. Understand HIV. Mm. Understand what the laws are. Understand how to communicate with your school. PTA stands for Parent Teacher Association. It's not just about raising muffins for the teachers, although I love the teachers and I want them to have muffins on teacher appreciation. <laughs> Don't take it the wrong way. But I think it goes further than that. And that's how we do it together. You know, we're all soldiers in this life, and I think it's important, but I always say an army, right? An army prepares for battle, but they always prefer resolution. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Listen, I wanted you to be here today because I think sometimes when you try to bring the scriptures to life, a, a lot of times people will go, that these are old stories, they're not true, and you know, that I, I don't sense that these things happen in and around us. This story is a story about how the casualties of what we do because of this desire for the inner ring and our, our innate nature where we're just trying to, to exclude for some reason. And so I, I want to give you the final word. If you were going to leave here and you wanted this church to know one thing, if there's one message that you have, because you have gone to a place and walked in places I never want to have to walk. Yeah. What I would you tell me? What would you tell us? I say put this bracelet on your arm and be the kind of person that you want to meet. Mallory had a little slogan and she called it, it's a bracelet kind of life. And she used to say, I wear this bracelet to remind me to be the good in the world. And that's what I do. I don't take it off. I wear it every day and when I'm having a bad day or I'm thinking, I just go out of my way to pay for someone's coffee or I mail a sweatshirt to a kid, mm. um, live a bracelet kind of life. Whatever your passion is, whether it's raising money for cancer or whether it's raising money for Mallory's Army or whatever you're passionate about, put that bracelet on, wear it, and live the life. You know, practice what you preach. Amen. You are an inspiration. Thanks. Your daughter's life 
mattered and your daughter's life matters. Yes. Um, for more information to help, go to Mallory'sArmy.com. Mallory'sArmy.org. Mallory'sArmy.org. Diane, yeah. thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a blessing. Thank you.